as, as young people, which you are, okay, uh, it's very easy to lose focus on how Christ perceives you. And, and, and this is why this is, this is often the case. Um, you have a lot going on in your lives. You're busy people, right? And you get distracted by, by the world easily because, because of your busyness. And oftentimes, and I've had lots of conversations with people who are in this very predicament right now. They become so busy with life and with ministry that they lose focus on what God, what God really wants to do in them. And that he is the one that's leading the charge. And he is the one that is filling us with his spirit. And he is the one that wants to see the harvest come in. And, and we get so fixated on what it is that we're doing that we lose track of the fact that God simply wants to, us to, to be used. And, and that, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm having a hard time saying this, but I am, I'm worthless. I am worthless. I bring no value to ministry. My flesh brings no value to this work. And we have to recognize that in order to truly be used. And I'm just, I'm just grateful for the message that, that Jeff uh, preached this morning. We are in Romans chapter 1, and you guys are sleepy. Aren't you? No? 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 no. 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 And so I need you to focus in, because we're going to try to finish Romans chapter 1 this morning. We're going to try to get all the way through it. And that's, that's many verses, so, so stick with me. Last Sunday, last, last Sunday, uh, we taught from Romans chapter 1, verses 17 through 20. And I'm going to read those to you real quick, just so we can get our minds focused in. Verse 17, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And so what we discussed was man's ability to either accept or refuse the revelation of God. Okay, so in turn, uh, because we have this opportunity to either accept or deny God in every moment of our life, every moment, every day, is we're filled with these faith propositions. Are we going to trust the Lord? In turn, God has an obligation to respond to our response. And what this passage is talking about is that, that as faith comes to us, as we have the revelation of God, we have an opportunity to either accept Him or to deny Him. And if we refuse Him, His wrath will enter into our lives. And sadly, that's what we're preaching on this morning. It's what that looks like. Okay, but by way of review, uh, and what we discussed was, was how God's creation itself clearly displays and declares His eternal power and Godhead. And in studying, we discussed how man's spiritual growth is contingent on whether or not we say yes to the faith propositions that are in our lives. In other words, we talked hypothetically. Okay, let's, so let's back up just a little bit. We spoke hypothetically about the, the, the person in the remote village. All right? and by way of addressing kind of the, doc, the doctrinal difficulties that we have a lot of times when we think about people who don't have easy access to the gospel the way that we do. Right? So in America, we are exposed to the name of Jesus Christ all the time. 
And oftentimes, as Christians, we think about, well, what about the individual who lives somewhere far away from here, who doesn't have the gospel, who doesn't have missionaries, who doesn't have churches, okay? And we, we find ourselves in this predicament where we're asking ourselves this hypothetical question, and a lot of times, people use it as an excuse not to believe, because, well, you know, those people, according to, to the scriptures, those people would be going to hell. And the truth is that anyone that doesn't accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior is going to hell. That's absolutely the truth. But the beauty of this passage is that God says in this passage, he's telling us, that he declares himself to every person in this world. And every person is faith, uh, faced with a faith proposition. And so, 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 for instance, the man in the remote village stares up at the sun and begins to consider who God is. And he begins to yield in faith. So that little faith proposition, that simple thing, he sees the, the, the sun and the moon in their rotation. And because of God's faithful, faithfulness, God provides him with more and more revelation. And as this hypothetical man's faith progresses, God's, God will make a way for the message of Jesus Christ to reach this person. He will make a way. Now, the thing about Romans uh, chapter 1 is it's not emphatic about how that happens. And I can't tell you emphatically how God goes about getting his, the message of Jesus Christ to every person in this world. I can't really, I can't do that. It just says here that they're without excuse. That's what the passage says. And, and from, from what I know about Romans chapter 10 is that God promises that salvation comes through preaching. Is that when, when people hear the message of Jesus Christ, they're without excuse, and he's going to use preachers to get people to work. But again, I can't tell you who those preachers will be, and how it will happen, and how it unfolds in that man in the remote village's life. I can't tell you that. The passage doesn't tell me that. But what it does tell me is that God's hand, his faithfulness, his love, extends, his grace, his mercy extends to every person in this world, and that he makes a way for every person to accept him. And we have to believe that. Now, inspirational, that's doctrinal. Inspirationally for us, what we can understand is the same thing is true in our lives. And so, for example, this principle applies to us. Perhaps you desire to be further along in your walk than you are. Does anybody ever feel that way? I, I wish I was further along in my walk. I wish my faith was bigger. I wish that, that, that I could be more mature than I am. Right? We've all had those thoughts. But hypothetically speaking, perhaps you desire to be further along in your walk, but, but you're faced with depression. Or you're faced with some sort of hurdle that seems to always get in the way. And in this hypothetical situation, maybe you struggle to be faithful to attending a church. And so your faith proposition looks like this. God, I want to be further along in my walk, but, but this thing impedes me. It, it keeps me back. It holds me back. And what God is extending to you is an opportunity to get beyond that. If you would simply be faithful to, fill in the blank, faithful to attending church. If you could just simply be faithful to say to the Lord that if I want to be a 2 Timothy chapter 4 type of Christian, a, a Christian that is evangelical everywhere that they go. If I, if I want to be that type of person, then I'm going to have to first be a Hebrews chapter 10 type of person. 
I'm going to have to be the type of person that says, I will not forsake the assembling of the believers. When they come together, I'm going to be there. Do you understand? Yeah. And so my point to you is this, that we're all faced with these faith propositions. And our ability to grow spiritually is contingent on whether or not we will choose to be faithful to the most simple things that stand in front of us. And maybe this morning you're the type of person that struggles with depression. Or your emotions come up against you in a way that, that keeps you from ministering to God's people then the thing that you stand in front of is an opportunity to say yes to God. Yes, I will, no matter how I feel, choose to stand out in faith. And I will be at church. And I will be at Bible study. And I will do the simple things. And God will meet you in that place. You understand how this principle applies? And I will meet you in that place. And I will reveal to you more. And I will make you stronger. And I will extend to you another faith opportunity. And every time you say yes to God, you have an opportunity for your faith to grow more and more. Do you understand? Now, see, I've already lost you guys. I'm in the introduction. Do you, are you hearing what I'm saying? Yeah. This, this passage gives us doctrinal insight, but it also provides for us an opportunity to understand that each of us, God wants to grow us. He wants to reveal more and more to us. He wants to exalt us in due time. But we can't do that until we say yes to the most simple things that we face every day. You, maybe you don't get in the Word every day. Well, I mean, I don't have to read very far in the Psalms to know that God wants me to wake up in the morning early and be in His Word. That I'm supposed to rest my head on a pillow at night, falling asleep to His Word. That sometimes I'm supposed to be awakened in the middle of the night to turn to His Word. I don't have to go very far in the Scripture to know that's who I'm supposed to be. And if you want to grow in God, then well, there's a faith proposition for you. Can you make discipline in your life to simply wake up in the morning and start to see, seek, him, uh, seek his face in the word? Can you do that? Faith proposition. And we're faced with these every day. We have to learn to say yes to God. And, and so we closed last week with this question. Will you be faithful to the measure of faith, the measure of truth that God has committed to you? What he's extended, extended to you? The question that he's asked you? The proposition that he's put before you. Will you be faithful to say yes? Now the question that we will open with today is what becomes of a person who refuses to accept Christ's clear revelation? What becomes of that person? What becomes of the person who acknowledges God but will not follow him by saying yes to his call? In other words, the proposition is put in front of them and they see it for what it is and they refuse it. What becomes of that individual? And the remainder of the chapter tells us. So, are we ready? Okay, let's let's do it. I'm gonna get some water first. I already killed the water that you gave me earlier, Miles. That little—that's nothing, man. Is that what they give you down there? Is that like the pastor water? Oh. Double honor. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Verse 20. The invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. Now, here we go. Here we go, right here. So that they are without excuse. They are without excuse. Now, we can't forget that this passage is about the Gentiles. You understand? Now the Gentiles are, are anyone who's not a Jew, anyone who didn't grow up 
with the Jewish teachings. Anyone who wasn't a part of that faith system, that's a Gentile. And these are the nations that have been ruled by idolatry for thousands of years. Even at this point, when, when Paul's writing this letter to Rome, the Gentiles are a people who have refused God over and over again for many, 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 many years. And if all these people are without excuse, that means they have refused God for generations and built uh, and are built. These, these cultures, these groups of people are built on a system of refusing God. So, so the question is, how have so many gotten so far from the truth of God? How come the Romans are in a place where they're so far away from God? When in the, when in the very beginning, Adam and Eve, and, and throughout time, they were faced with opportunities to accept God for who he really was. How did they find themselves here? That's the real question that the, that the passage is laying out for us. How did the Gentiles get so far from God? And don't you think that sometimes too? When you look at the people in your life, that you surround yourself with, the people that you, you want to receive the message of Jesus Christ, the people that are at your school or, or, or at your workplace, and you think, how did they get so far away from truth? How did they get there? Well, for the Gentiles, it says that they knew him. They knew. Verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but, because, uh, but became vain in their imaginations. They were without excuse because they knew. They knew. They knew. Didn't they? Well, how did they know? The Gentiles knew God because they had heard the testimonies of God and they had seen his power before. They saw it in the great flood of Genesis. There we go. Didn't they? Didn't the whole world see the revelation of who God was when he flooded the entire world? Didn't they see his powerful hand? Didn't they see the revelation of who he truly was and what he desired for mankind when he flooded the entire earth? They saw, they knew. They saw it in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah when fire came down from heaven and scorched an entire city and, and, and burnt it to the ground so that nothing remained. They knew. They knew God in the midst of the plagues of Egypt in Exodus. Didn't they? They saw God's hand at work when plague after plague came up against Pharaoh. They knew. And in the drowning of Pharaoh's armies in the Red Sea, the fame of that went around the world. The whole world knew the fame of who God was. The God that the Israelites followed. When he drowned the armies of Pharaoh in the Red Sea. They knew. The Amorites knew. They knew God. In Joshua chapter 5, when he dried up the Jordan, and when he brought down the walls of Jericho, the world knew, the Gentile nations knew who God was. They saw him. They saw his hand. They, they saw his strength. They saw his power. They saw his judgment. Just as the sun rises in the morning, they saw God's hand. They knew. The Philistines saw God in 1 Samuel chapter 5, when the theft of the Ark of the Covenant resulted in the desolation of Dagon's temple and the plague of hemorrhoids, which I love to talk about. <laughs> when, the, the, when the plague of hemorrhoids came upon those Gentile nations and those cities and those kingdoms were plagued with hemorrhoids, oh, they knew the name of God. They were crying out for mercy. They knew his power. They, no, they, read, read chapter 6 of 1 Samuel, uh, Samuel. They were brought to their knees. 
And, 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 it's, and it's funny because he quite literally did that, physically made them come down on their knees. But the truth was their hearts were broken and they were hurting and they knew him. They knew him. The, the Gentiles knew him in Ziklag. And they knew him in Ammon. They knew God in Babylon and Persia. They knew his fame in Greece and in Rome. And they knew his miracles and his mercy. And yet, and yet, they glorified him not. I mean, that's what it comes down to, doesn't it? That when God did reveal himself, that they chose not to follow him. They chose not to follow him. And you know, we see this over and over again with the Gentiles. We see it over and over again in the Old Testament. We see it in the story of Jonah, don't we? We see the Ninevites come to a saving knowledge of God, but a hundred years later they're destroyed. And there's a whole other book that records their destruction because they refused him. They chose to refuse him. And that's the thing. That's the story of the Gentile people. You know, Pharaoh bore witness to all those plagues, yet chose a hard heart. And you know what? God gave it to him. God let him have what he wanted. 1 Kings chapter 18, Ahab and Jezebel, they witnessed the burning of the pylon by God. Did you, you guys remember that story? Where God works through Elijah, and the priests are trying to burn that pylon. The, the priests of Baal are trying to burn that pylon. And, and, and Elijah is, is mocking them. And he's like, where are your gods? Are they asleep? Are they sleeping? Are they taking a nap? Can they not hear you today? And then when God shows up, that pylon is just scorched to the ground. And, and yet, the principalities, Ahab and Jezebel, see that happening. They see that the God of the Israelites is stronger than their gods. And what do they do? They seek to kill Elijah. Well, we got to snuff out Elijah then. That was their solution, was to do away with God's prophet. Do you understand that it's not a crazy thought for our world to see so clearly who Jesus Christ is, and yet they refuse him? To know of the miracle of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, and yet refuse him. You know why? Because they weren't thankful. They didn't see it for what it truly was. The Gentile nations, they've always defied God. And it was no different in Rome when Paul wrote this letter. And it's no different today. People are not thankful for who God is. They were were unthankful people. And in time, they became vain in their thoughts. They became vain in their imagination. The phrase phrase, vain imagination is a reference to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Okay? And that term is used, vain imagination. That phrase, they're they're vain in their imaginations, was was used right before God decided to destroy the entire earth with a flood. That's the first mention of vain imagination. Their, their thoughts, instead of being thankful for who God was, they, they wandered off and they began to consider how they could indulge themselves. They saw his mercy, they saw, they saw his power, they saw, they saw everything. They knew, and yet, 
They chose to go their own way. Psalm chapter 2, verse 1 uh, declares this. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? When left to our own devices, our imaginations will always lead us to a place of ignorance. Now, what we're doing right now is we're talking about the stages, the stages of our refusal. Okay, and by the time we, we're going to have four stages here that lead us to a destructive place. And I'm going to wrap this up at the end. I'll tie a nice little bow on it. But our first stage is this issue of intelligence. Okay? The Gentile nations have always defied God, just as Rome did and just as we do today. Uh, Albert, will you go to the next slide? And here's our principle. We need to respond right to what God is showing us. Okay, so again, when we look at God's word and we see who it is that we're supposed to be, when we see his hand, when we see the clarity of who God is, when we see how he's leading, and, we, and we're faced with that faith proposition. Maybe it's to start a Bible study in, in Grandview. Okay? Maybe that's the faith proposition. And you're afraid to do that thing because you know what it's going to require of you. You know how difficult it's going to be. Maybe it's quitting a job. Maybe it's letting go of friends. Maybe it's simply deciding to take on a new ministry responsibility. Or to go out and witness to someone that you know God is calling you to evangelize. How should we respond? Well, we should first respond by being thankful for that revelation. Just like that man in that village in that remote place, when he sees the truth of who God is and he gets a glimpse of God's face, he should first be thankful for God's revelation to him. Then next he should come. Whoa, bro. <laughs> then, then next that says one twice. I don't know why I did that, but whatever. Committing your works to him. And this is what I mean. Because this is the deal. This is the deal. Well, I thought we were talking about vain imaginations. Shouldn't I just not have vain imaginations? Should I just have, not have that? No, it's not that easy. Who knows it's hard to control your thoughts? Amen. Don't your thoughts just go wherever they want to go sometimes? And you find yourself in a place and you, you're in your mind and you're in a dark place and you don't know how you got there? Here's the issue. Here's the issue. This is the answer. You need, you need to commit your works to God. If you don't want vain imaginations. Proverbs 16.3 says, Commit thy works unto the Lord, and thy thoughts shall be established. So here's the deal. Doesn't this so make sense? Do we need to be thankful for God's revelation and for how he's leading us? And we need to simply say, Yes, God, I will start that Bible study in Grandview. Yes, I will go speak the truth of the gospel to that person. Yes, I will quit that job. Yes, I will quit those friends. Yes, God, 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 I will, I will. Yes, yes, yes. And as you fall into that work, and as you choose to step out and do according to what God's called you to do and obey, he will establish your mind. He will make your mind be what it needs to be to be fruitful, to be at peace, to have joy. But the truth is, if you don't say yes to God... You're going to be lost to your own imaginations and you're going to become an ignorant person. Stage two. Stage two is ignorance. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man into birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Now, now this passage is obviously talking about the physical idols that the Gentiles, Gentile nations have, have made to God. And, the, and you know, the thing is, in America, I, when I was young, I used to always have a hard time imagining this applying to me. Like thinking about what, what? They did what? But then I went to India. 
And there's four-footed beasts along the road. There's, 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 there's giant monkey gods, and there's, there's, there's a thousand, a, a million of these things. And Gentile nations are worshiping these things today. And you know what? The truth is, we are too. And we'll get into that. So what happened first? They were professing themselves to be wise. They thought themselves to be smart. It's just like human beings to know the truth, but to tamper with the idea that it doesn't apply to them. I know what what I'm supposed to do, but this way is better. This way over here is better. You know, and, and and it comes at a philosophy, a very Epicurean philosophy, right? That, that you only live once, right? You, you only live once. And that's become such a common part of our vernacular. This idea that we're going to do what's best for us. Where you're professing to be wise. And in doing so, you, you become a fool. When we aren't thankful and our imagination wanders, there comes a point when our mind will be poisoned and then grow dim. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. We're going to read through this real quick. You can turn there if you want, or you can follow along up there, but pay close attention because it's a long passage. For the, pre- uh, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Now this this verse is powerful to me. For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. When they saw the wisdom of God, in their own wisdom they chose not to know Him. That's exactly what we're talking about. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And this is really without... Without wanting to jump ahead, I'm going to. The only answer to combat the wisdom of the world is the foolishness of preaching. If I want to wage war against this, then I better get really foolish real fast. You know, a lot of us don't want to do that. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. God's very foolishness, right? This is like a, this is like a cute way for Paul to say, like, if God had any foolishness in him, his foolishness would be wiser than the wisdom of this world. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see, uh, for ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world, and things which are despised, hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. Then no flesh should glory in his presence. 
But of him are ye in Christ, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. I don't really know if there is a better passage in all of Scripture. I mean, it, this, this passage right here informs everything that we should be. Everything that we need to be as believers exists right here. If we could submit to this truth, we would impact this world. But the point is this morning is that, is that the world's wisdom becomes foolishness and their minds do become poisoned. They become ignorant. Look at verse 23 of Romans chapter 1. And they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like the corruptible man into birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. And this is the point. Even foolish people need to worship, don't they? And if they're not going to choose God, then they're going to worship something. The impulse to worship never leaves a person. Even if they refuse God, that impulse to worship, it stays with you. The point is to, is to find a God that will meet the needs of a foolish man or woman, isn't it? So this, this is what I mean. The gods that we create, the idols that we make in our lives, don't we always create them with the intention that they would serve us? Like all the four-footed beasts and the, and the creatures and the, and the idols of old, right? Every one of those false gods ever made was made with the intention that they would serve us. So will the, they will, they'll make the land more fertile. Or, or uh, they will, uh, it'll bring blessing into our village or into our people. Or they'll make us wealthy. Or they'll, they'll make us, they'll entertain us. And all of the idols that have ever been created were made with the intention that they would serve us, but the truth is they end up consuming us. They consume us. And that's true here. The idols of our world, they always, they, they start out of a place of convenience, but they always end up destroying us. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God, but they are corrupt. They have done abominable works, and there is none that doeth good. The next stage is indulgence. Wait, do I have a principle up there? Sorry, principle number two. I left out my notes back. Be aware of your desires. Okay, this is a warning. Be aware of your desires and remember they have potential to become idols. Think about the things in your life that you desire in your flesh. Even as a believer. You know, all it takes is for you to say no to God one time. Right? All it takes is for you to say no to God one time. And you could quickly find yourself in a place of foolishness. You could quickly find yourself in a place of idolatry. And we all know it. We've all seen, okay, so we've all seen friends come into Kaya, right? People that you thought would be established. People that you desire with all your heart to invest in. People that you counseled, you spent time with, and you, and you, and you, you are provoking them to follow the Lord. 
And there came a moment where they had an opportunity to say yes or no. You remember that for your friend? Or maybe that was you. You remember that? And then when they said no, where are they now? They are somewhere worshiping a false god. You understand? Does that make sense to you? They are somewhere worshiping a false god. And it only takes for any of us to find ourselves in a place where we're supposed to say yes to God, but we just can't bring ourselves to do it. That we too will find ourselves in a place of idolatry. So don't judge and don't be high-minded. Beware. Beware. Verse 24, stage 3, indulgence. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Idolatry to immorality is just one short step. You catch that? It's one short step between idolatry and immorality. To living wickedly. To living in uncleanness. And this is the climax of of man's downfall. When he exchanges God's truth completely for a lie. When When he trades what he knows about God for a lie. This is it. This is the turning point. This is the part that's hard to come back from. No longer are we choosing to even acknowledge God, but instead we're adhering to the lie. And this was the plan of Satan's from the very beginning. This is the trap. This is where Satan is trying to get us to in his temptations and his his lies. is to exchange the truth of who God is for the lie. And the the lie is this. Is it up there? Genesis chapter 3 verse 5 says, part of Satan's lie was this. You can become as God's. And in our most selfish and most self-indulgent moments, the only thing we want to be is a God. That's what we want to be. Because if we are our own God, then we can get away with anything that we want. And that's a hard place to come back from. And so in the passage, God talks about what he had to do to the Gentile nations. Verse 26 says, For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. And when I read that word, gave them up, that's a, really, that's a really hard verse to read. Gave them up. He gave them up. In other words, he had them and that he had revealed his truth. Like they were in a place where they, there was potential. Like, look, I'm, I'm showing myself to you. I'm revealing myself to you. And you refused me. And you began to worship yourself. And I have no choice but to, to give you to your own devices. Because I made free will. Because I made you to have choices. Because I love you. I want you to choose me. But, but because you've refused me, I have no choice but to give you over to your vile affections. So that those, the consequences of those things would work out their perfect work. I have no choice but to do this. You forced my hand, Pharaoh. You've hardened your heart in such a way that I have, I have nothing else I can do with you. But let you go down the path that you've chosen. He gave them up into vile affections. There becomes a point in the indulgence process when God gives people exactly what they want. 
And this was true for every Gentile society, and they're true for people today. It's true for people today, isn't it? Think about how consumed people are. How far their minds have gotten from God. And it seems as though they continue to grow farther and farther away. And it does happen in an individual's life, and it happens in a nation's life. It's true. That's the fight we're fighting. God allowed Pharaoh to have exactly what he wanted, and he gave him over to a hard heart. And from that place, a human being is only going to reap the consequences of their own self-indulgence, which for many in Rome and many today means sexual immorality. That's what that means. Sexual promiscuity, the skewing of gender roles, the liberation from sexual boundaries, all condemned in Scripture. That's the course that it takes. In our most fleshly moments, this is what we want, guys. Let's be real honest. In our most fleshly moments, when we're given over to vile affections, the only thing that we want is insobriety and sex. That's why all of, throughout all of history, the, most, the greatest form of worship in most false religions, in most cults, in most pagan societies, the greatest form of worship is sex. And they did it in the temples. Right? I mean, it doesn't take much study of history to realize that in most pagan cultures, the greatest form of worship was community sex. This is messing with anybody now that I'm talking about this? Sorry. This is what the passage is talking about. This is where it goes. Verse 26 says, For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. For even the women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with, uh, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat. And so, I mean, I'm not going to do a full exploration why the Bible says that homosexuality is wrong. I'm not going to do that this morning. Everyone knows what the Bible says about homosexuality. Everyone knows. Everyone knows that God condemns it. And you might want to tap, tap dance around Scripture, and you might want to claim, well, that's the God of the Old Testament or the God of the New Testament. You cannot get away from this truth. God hates adultery, fornication, homosexuality, lasciviousness. He hates it. He, he hates lustful thinking. He hates it because it's a reflection of a reprobate mind. When the person is furthest away from, from where God is, this is where they go. And he hates it. And so he gives them over to it. And it says you're receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was me. What does that mean? It means that he sets them in a course in a trajectory that ends in judgment. It ends in consequence. It ends in pain and suffering. And for many, it ends in hell. For many of the Gentile nations, it ended in, in hell, in hellfire. 
That's what verse 18 is about. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. That's what, that's the whole premise of this passage, is that God will judge those who choose to refuse him in his revelation. That's what this is about. And so we enter into the fourth stage, which is impenitence, which just means without conviction. That's what that word means. It's just like no regret anymore for sin, no regret for what I'm doing. Many of us, um, many of us know that place. Many of us have been there at the threshold of this type of thinking where you didn't even feel bad for the sins that you committed. I'm telling you, that's a dangerous place to be is a reprobate mind. Verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. This is one of the most sobering passages in all of Scripture. And part of the reason is why, a reason why is we know people. We know lost people that are there. So what is this reprobate mind? Because there's been lots of debate about what this means over time. Reprobate mind means depraved. It means depraved. This mind is reserved for those who exchanged God's words for a lie. They saw the truth and chose another more convenient answer. That's what a reprobate mind is, is the result of. Now reprobate is used six times in English and eight times in your Greek. And sometimes it's translated cast away or rejected. Okay, so what is it? It is a lost person who refuses to respond rightly to God's proposal. And it's a person who hardens their heart. And in so doing, God gives them over to, to a hard mind. He give, he, he, is that that's what you want? Are you sure that's what you want? That's what I want. So be it. God gives people over to a reprobate mind because, because he was so faithful before then. Because he was so intentional in revealing himself. Because he was there. Because the message was clear. There's something to be reprobate from, right? If you're a castaway, if you're rejected, what is it you're rejected from? Well, you're rejected from the truth that God so clearly gave you. But a lot of times we talk about the reprobate mind and we're like, well, God, how possibly could you have allowed Pharaoh's heart to be hard? How could you have done that to him? Well, Pharaoh chose that. God is not in the business of making people do things that, he, uh, that they don't want to do. But he created a system that is any... God created a system that's intended to, to self-correct. Isn't it? Isn't the, the system that God put in place, the free will system, intended to self-correct us? Don't touch that, that stove. 
you touch it, you burn your hand, and you've learned not to touch the stove, right? The same thing is true as an adult. I shouldn't have had sex outside of a marriage relationship because it's only ever led to heartache. That hurt me. I don't want to do that anymore. I shouldn't, I shouldn't have gotten drunk last night because I feel like crap this morning. It's wicked, and it's God's reminder to me that, that wickedness is painful and that it brings suffering. The system is built that way to call your name back to Him. Come back to me, come back to me. But listen to me, there are some that get drunk every night. And there are some that are so promiscuous in their sexual activity that their mind has been severed away from God so severely that it's, it's hard for them to turn back. That is a reprobate mind. Sometimes people are so determined to disobey God that He determines Himself to let them suffer the natural consequences that eventually leads to hell. Now I don't have time. Go to the next slide. You guys might want to take a photo of this. God deals with immorality for the Christian in a similar way. But it's a lot safer way. Right? So like, for a lost person, judgment is uh, in a reprobate mind. That's just a very severe thing. But in the church, God also has a form of consequence. And he will allow someone to be given over to their flesh for the destruction of it. He allowed, That's true for you too, Christian. Someone who calls himself by the name of, of Christian, it's true for you that if you choose to go pursue sin, it's going to bite you. It's going to bring about destruction in your life. And he put that in place so you will come back to the church. You will come back to his word. You will come back to his revelation. And you will say yes to him. That's his heart. We don't have time to spend there. But I want to talk about the hope that there is in all of this. Can I, can I spend a moment doing that? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? In other words, the reprobate. Did you know that the reprobate will not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor nor extortioners shall inherit, inherit the kingdom of God. No reprobate gets to come into heaven. No person with a mind that's poisoned gets to come and stand before God and enjoy all the things that, that God has for those that follow Him. They don't get that. They don't get to enjoy that. They only get judgment, but check it out. This is so powerful. What Paul said to the church in Corinth, this is so good. And such were some of you But ye are washed. But ye are sanctified. But ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. There is always hope. So like when I think about my sister and I think about how far away from she is from the Lord and how poisoned her mind is, 
I can believe. Yeah. When, when you've got a guy at work named Will, and it seems in your mind that, that Will will never receive the gospel. He'll never hear it. It's not really, that's, that's not him. His lifestyle isn't conducive to hearing the gospel. And so you put it off. But then in a moment, you're faithful to speak foolishness. And you say those things that seem so foolish to say. And you preach the cross. And you preach the resurrection. And you preach the inerrancy of the word of God. And they get a taste. And they respond. And there's hope. You know, there's this great story in Acts chapter 17. And I'm going to read it in closing. Okay, so Acts chapter 17, verse 16. And then we'll close. Because I don't want to go too long. Verse 16. Acts 17, 16. Now while Paul waited for, for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Wherefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market, uh, market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, What will this uh, babbler say? Others some, He seemeth to be a, a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto uh, Areopagus, I guess, Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears, and we would know therefore what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. And before I go on, I want to tell you that these people, these Greeks, were a lot like the Romans. And the culture of the lost world in Rome, where he was writing the letter of Romans to, right? Okay, these people are in a, strange, uh, in a similar place. Okay, so, so I'm going to come back to that. Then Paul stood in the midst of Marcel and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with its inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship. Him declare, declare I unto you, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and, and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell all on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the things before appointed and the bounds of their, of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord. If haply they might, meet, uh, they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. And before I go any further, this is like, this is again, this is like the revelation of God. He's, he's saying God has revealed himself to man through nature. And it's like they're in a dark place and they get a little bit of light and he's there. He's not far off. Like you might not have, re have realized it, but God's right within your reach and you can feel him and you can make him out. He's the unknown God to you. Who is that God? That he's, he's right there, right? That's what he's describing for them. For in him we live and we move and we have our being as certain also of you, uh, of your own poets have said. 
We are also uh, his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by arts and man's device. And the things uh, in the times of this ignorance, God winked at. Right? In the times of old, in the times of the Old Testament, God oftentimes winked at the, the wickedness of the Gentiles. And he, and he let it unfold. He winked at it. But now the truth has come, right? But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Because he hath appointed a day in which he, uh, which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from them, from among them. Howbeit, certain men clave on him and believed, among the which was Dionysius, and then there's that word again, the area Apagite, and a certain man, Damaris, and others with him. Okay, so here's the point, and this is what I'll close with. So Paul gets all stirred up, and he comes and he preaches this message. And he's telling the people who are serving an unknown God, there's the people who are devoted to idolatry, they're devoted to wickedness. You with me? And he comes in the midst of them, and he tells them about Jesus Christ, and he tells them about the resurrection. And how did that go? How did the foolishness of preaching go that day? You say not good? You say not good? Because I'm pretty sure that howbeit certain men claim unto him that day. And that there were a few people that chose to follow. Like we look at this as such a failure. The Mars Hill situation and that debate at Mars Hill was such a failure. But a few claimed. A few chose. And isn't that what we do? We go and we preach the foolishness of Jesus Christ to a lost world, to people with reprobate minds, and some will remain. Some will choose that path, and some will choose destruction, but some, there's hope for. And that's all I need. All I need to know is that there's hope for some men. That's all I need to keep going. Because if there's not hope for some men, and for the most wicked people, if there's not hope for them, then what, then what am I doing? See, it's the foolishness of preaching that brings hope into this world and delivers the wicked from their ways. And that's what I want to live for. And the reason that there's a letter being written to Romans... The reason Paul gets to write this letter is because some of the people that were once fornicating and they were once worshiping false idols and they were, they were living in lasciviousness and, and, and they were murderers and backbiters and fornicators, they were delivered from that life. The reason that this letter even exists for these people and that Paul was extending himself in this way is because they found hope in Jesus Christ. So that's what we have. And so the question becomes, oh, here's our principle, sorry, did you guys get that? So here's the invitation. Are you, or is a loved one in your life, in danger of exchanging the truth of God for a lie? 
Because if they are, it's time to pray. Because once they enter into that reprobate mind, they become, they become consumed. Once they enter into that place, it's hard. It's hard for them to come back. And we want to pray that when they're faced with faith, they will say yes to God. That's what we want to pray this morning. And so the invitation is this. Will you take some time right now to pray that God's foolishness, the foolishness of the gospel would reach that person that they would say yes? Can that be our invitation? So, so let's worship. And let's pray for those that we fear are growing reprobate. Can we do that? Amen. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for who you've made us to be. We thank you for your revelation to us. Lord, we thank you for the fact that we have a word from you. And that we are without excuse. You've, you've, kind of, you've kind of cornered us, God. You've made it so that we can't get away with saying, well, we didn't know. We didn't know any better. No one gets to say that. And so, God, I just thank you for your pursuit of all of mankind. That, that, that for me, uh, someone who grew up in Kansas City in the Midwest, where there's Bibles in every home, that, Lord, I had an opportunity to choose you and choose you at this level, so much so that you've grown me, that you've grown me to be a leader and you've grown me into the pastorate and I get to be this person. Thank you for that, for, for, for pursuing me in that way. And, God, I thank you for the, the fact that your hand extends to even the most remote places in this world where, where idolatry seems to be so prevalent that your voice is still there and declaring itself. I thank you for that. And God, I just pray that you would be so powerful in your provocation that men everywhere would be constrained to follow you and to choose that foolish and narrow path. And I pray that for our family. And I pray that for our friends. And I pray that for all that we find ourselves influencing. Would you give us the ability and the simplicity of faith to speak the truth of the gospel to every person that we know. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.